0: Thanks so much for making it out here this morning on a a nice spring day um, with just a little bit of snow, just a little bit. Um, But it's great to be here together, to worship together. Our God is worthy. It's great to be a family together, to encourage each other. Um, Hope you take advantage of you in the time after the service to connect with people, ask how they're doing, maybe even pray for people. Um, But we can be family together here this morning. Well, uh, my name is Michael, and I'm a church plant resident here at The Vine, and this morning we're continuing in our series in Exodus, but almost doing like a mini-sermon series on the Ten Commandments. So this week through the next nine, we'll be focusing one at a time on the Ten Commandments. And I'm guessing that this morning, even if you couldn't tell me all Ten Commandments in a row, everyone here has heard about the Ten Commandments. Whether it was watching Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments, classic film, whether it's you've heard about it being argued about whether to have them up in the public square in the news, everyone's heard about the Ten Commandments. That they're this general moral code for how to live. And maybe uh, for you, the Ten Commandments, the way you feel about them when you hear about them, is this is just one of those spots of just do's and don'ts that I don't like the Bible about. Or maybe you look at it and go, man, this is great. I just wish that everyone just lived by these ten rules and everything would be better. Or maybe you've been striving to live after these ten rules, and yet you find yourself discouraged because you can't live up to them perfectly ever. But Whatever your reflection is on them this morning, those three views all have one major problem in common with them. They take the Ten Commandments out of context. As if they're just some abstract moral rules we can plop down anywhere. When instead, they actually are given in the context of a story. A story of what God is doing to redeem a people for himself. A people that we heard about last time have an identity as his treasured possession. A kingdom of priests. A holy nation. And the Ten Commandments is really starting to flesh out what does it mean to be God's people so what I want us to do this morning is simply kind of look at two different things. One, why are the Ten Commandments actually good? What's the context they find themselves in? And then second, we'll dive into the first commandment, the most important one, the one from which all the others flow out from. And so would you just join me in just praying and asking God to be at work? Father, I pray this morning that you would just as in your kindness you cause the sun to rise every day and the rain or snow to fall for both the just and the unjust, that in your kindness that your word would come forth and you would open our eyes to see it and open our ears to hear it and make our hearts willing to receive it so that we can see you more clearly, know who you are, know who we are in Christ and what it means to be your people for our good and your glory. Pray this in your name. Amen. Well, let me read from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So here we are at the start of the Ten Commandments. And I remember chatting one time with a professor of Old Testament at Wheaton College by the name of Daniel Block. I knew him. He was a fellow Canadian. So awesome. Uh, I'm from Canada, if you didn't know. But anyways, I'm chatting with him. And we we're talking about the Ten Commandments. And he said something that stuck with me. He said, you know, the biggest problem I have with people wanting to stick up the Ten Commandments in public is that they always start at the wrong spots. They always start with, you shall have no other gods before me. that's not where God starts. Maybe you notice that, right? Verse 2, God's first words are not a command. They are not, you shall have no other gods before me. His first words to the people are, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. His first words to them are not actually a command. They're an identity statement. And not even about our identity, but about who God is and what God has done. And this is the context we have to understand the Ten Commandments in. Imagine with me, the Israelites right back then, they just left Egypt, where they worship all kinds of different gods. The God of the sun, a God of the underworld, a God of water, a God of fertility. And they're about to go to the land of Canaan, where they have gods for every little thing. And here, God wants to tell them something about who he is. He says, I am the Lord, all capital letters, which is the Hebrew word Yahweh, meaning the eternally existing one. The one who always was, always is, and always will be, who is not created and who has created everything that is. That's who he is. And he says, I am your God. I mean, that right there alone is, is grounds for him giving us any commands. He is the creator God, and we are his creation. And yet, amazingly, he doesn't focus primarily there, but he goes on to say, this is who I am based off my actions. And he says, I am the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. If you want to know who I am, I am the God who saves the people I call to myself. I am the God who redeems. I am the God who rescues. That's who I am. And this is always the pattern that God works. He calls the people to himself. He saves them. He redeems them. And then he teaches them what it means to live. He brings them into relationship. And then he teaches them the family rules. It always starts with his action, his saving grace to people that don't deserve it. That's where God starts with relationship that he made possible. This makes sense because I'm guessing if you were to go home later today and someone knocked at your door in the afternoon and you opened it and they said, Hi, you must worship me only and love me alone and do all that I command you. You would be like, who is this person? Right? I mean, I'm guessing that no matter what your reaction is, whether it's like jaw dropping on the floor, checking the calendar to see if it's April 1st, you know, thinking, okay, who pranked me? You would not have the reaction of, oh, sure, I'll just do everything he says. You wouldn't do that, right? They're a total stranger. And God's the same way. He says, I am not a stranger knocking on the door. I am the God who has saved you who has redeemed you, who has drawn you into relationship. And not only that, but I've proven that I'm trustworthy. It's not just knowing someone, it's knowing their character that matters. God says, if you want to know what I'm like, remember what I did. I brought you out of Egypt. I saved you by my mighty hand, and you didn't do anything to earn it or deserve it. That's my character. A God who does that, a God who redeems, a God who saves, can be trusted. And it's true for us today as well. On this side of the cross, after we saw how God sent his own son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins and be raised again to new life, surely we see God's character. In fact, Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. So glorify God in your body. See that same pattern. You were bought. You were saved. Now in light of that, glorify God. Obey Him. Walk in His way. Jesus saved us. We were guilty rebels. Slaves to sin. On the way to death. And He, God the Father, sent His Son to pay the price, to redeem us out of slavery, and not just that, but then to adopt us into his family. If that is true, isn't that the God you want to follow? Isn't that the God you want to worship and love, if he did all of that? And I can't stress this enough, the Ten Commandments will not be good news to you until you have that foundation. They will not be life-giving words, unless you understand that they are grounded first in God's saving relationship towards us, only then can you view them as they actually are, his good teaching of a loving father to his children. Only then can we embrace the fact that as a good father, he gives us limits and boundaries, which, frankly, right, most of us don't often like limits or boundaries. We want to be free. That's, that's the cry so often of our culture. We just want to be free. And yet, true freedom requires limits. It requires boundaries. I'm guessing we would be in a bad spot if we were not limited by gravity, right? A fish would not do well if they were out of water. They're not free to be a fish in any scenario. The freedom to be who they are is within limits, within boundaries. And God is a good father teaches us these boundaries in these Ten Commandments. Just like I teach my kids some things, right? I I give them rules, and they don't always like my rules, right? Uh, When I tell them, don't stick your finger in the socket or you'll get a consequence, they don't like that I'm impinging on their freedom. And sometimes they want to go and test that line, right? And yet, I love them enough to teach them, and God does the same. He not only redeems and saves us, but he loves us enough to teach us. Look at verse 1 with me. God spoke all these words saying. Do you notice the emphasis on, on words and speaking? He spoke words saying. That's three times in one little verse. Emphasis on words, on speaking, on instruction. Why? Well, because back then, the gods did not speak because the gods weren't real. The way you figured out what was the will of the gods if you were not... Worshipping the true God was you looked at animal entrails. You looked at the stars. You tried to think through what the dreams meant. You were guessing. What do the gods want? I don't know. Let's guess and see if it works. And let's hope we don't guess wrong because then they're going to bring the hammer down on us. And you can see that in a book like The Odyssey where Menelaus, a Greek warrior on his way back from the battle of Troy, gets stuck on an island as he's angered the gods. But he doesn't know which god he's angered. He doesn't know what he did to anger them. He just knows he's blocked from getting home. But God is not like that. God is not a vindictive parent with a list of rules in his brain that he never shares with us and then gets us when we cross them. No, he loves us enough to speak. To say, let me tell you what's actually good for you. I've proven I love you by redeeming you. I've proven I care. Now let me show you What my good care looks like. Live within these good rules. It's good for you. That is why the Ten Commandments are good news. Because they are the instructions of a loving Father who redeemed us and who now teaches us the way that is good. So now let's dive into the first commandment. What does it say? Well, in verse 3 we see it stated simply, You shall have no other gods before me. Now, he's not saying here that there are other gods that really exist that are equal to him. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying, look, Israelites, you were in Egypt. There are lots of gods there. You're going to Canaan. There will be lots of gods there. You can't worship any of them. Because even though they aren't real, even though they don't have any real power, if you treat them as real, they begin to function as a god to you. They begin to occupy the center of your heart and life, and they start to shape how you live. And I don't want that for you. It's not good. So he says, you shall have no other gods before me. And he's not just saying, I get first place and they have to come second. He's saying, no, 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 they can't be in my presence. And that language before me is often used in the Old Testament to talk about forbidding a second wife. So the picture here is God saying, I married you. I rescued you, you're my bride. You can't say, we love you, we worship you, and then bring somebody else to live in the house with us. That doesn't work. You love me alone. You worship me alone. And you can see this when actually Jesus, later, quoting the Old Testament, talks about this command in the positive aspect. So in Mark 12, someone asked him, what's the greatest command? And he says, the most important command is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, as in, He's the only one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Not most of your heart, not some of your heart, all your hearts. All your mind, all your soul, all your your strength. This is an exclusive love that God is asking of us. And that's why over and over again in scripture, the consistent call is you must choose. Choose who will be at the center. Choose who you will love. So Joshua, the successor to Moses, after he's brought the people finally into the land as is about to die, reminds them one last time. He says, now therefore, Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You've got to make a choice, Israel. There's only room for one God. Who will you choose? Will you put away all the other gods? And Jesus actually repeats the same teaching. In Matthew 6, he says, No one can serve two masters. He will either love the one and hate the other, or despise the one and serve the other. There's, there's no way you can serve two masters. It doesn't work. Uh, A small example of this is I know someone who claims to be both a Green Bay Packers fan and a Chicago Bears fan, which I see a lot of you just shaking and laughing. You know that's impossible. If you are a Green Bay Packers fan, by definition, you cannot like the Bears. And if you like the Bears, you cannot, by definition, like the Packers. It's impossible. But this person thinks they can cheer for both teams, except on those days when the two teams play each other. Because then they actually have to make a choice. Who will they cheer for? Thankfully, they picked the Packers. But, all right, now that's a small example. But that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, you can think you can serve two masters. But there are points where push comes to shove and you really see who is the one you love. And so, don't worship other gods. You can apply that in terms of thinking about uh, other religions. Don't worship Allah and Jesus. You can't. It doesn't work. You can't worship Buddha and Jesus. It doesn't work. But I think that probably most of you here, that's not the struggle. There's other gods that you tend to worship. In fact, Jesus goes on to finish his teaching in Matthew 6 by saying, you cannot serve God and money. Money, Jesus? Money can be a god? Absolutely. Anything can be. Anything that you love and treasure and is at the center of your life, so you orbit around it and it shapes your decisions, that is your God. And as we just sang about earlier, our hearts are prone to wander. Our hearts are prone to find something else to stick at the center of our lives. And we look to those things for value, for identity. For meaning, like if this is just, if I could just have this then, then I would be someone or something. Those are our gods. And the reason why it's so important to wrestle with this is because every god demands service and promises something. And the question you have to ask yourself is, which god actually delivers? And the Bible says over and over again, there's only one God who delivers. He actually already has delivered, and it's Jesus. He's the one that has proven himself to be the only true and faithful God, the only one worthy of being at the center of our hearts. And because he knows that and he loves us, he says, put away other gods. Not only because I alone deserve that place, but also because it's not good for you to have other gods. They destroy. They ruin. They steal. They don't work. Maybe some of you here this morning are even feeling that. Maybe you've been chasing success in business or school or something, and you think this will satisfy, but then you see the cost maybe in your family or in other relationships. Or maybe it's, if I could just have a relationship, then I would be full and I would be complete. But time and time again, you're left Empty, still hungry, still waiting for something to fill. Or maybe it's this pursuit of a certain body image. And you spend time and money and energy, but it's never enough. Over and over again, none of these things necessarily being inherently bad, but when they become our God, when they become the center, they send everything out of whack. Because God made us to orbit around Him, to be centered on Him. And if we don't, then not only do we break this first commandment, we start to break all the others. Because maybe you're pursuing success in some endeavor, but lying would help you achieve success. There goes another command. Maybe in your. Uh, A a drive to succeed, you're coveting what somebody else has. Or maybe there's anger in your heart towards someone who's getting in the way, which Jesus says is equal to murder. There's another one. Because when this first commandment gets off, when what you have at the center of your life is off, everything else gets affected. Because what you love shapes you. What you love shapes everything about your life. And so we need to ask, What is at the center of our lives? How do we figure that out? Well, our actions reveal what we have at the center. So Jesus did this once. There was a rich, young, moral man who came to him. Perfect guy for, man, a church plant. He's rich, he's young, he's moral. Yes, Jesus wants him on his team. But instead, Jesus looks at him and says, I see something in your heart. And so he says, go. If you really want to follow me, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. Because Jesus saw that money was at the center of his heart. And so he gave him a choice. You can choose. You can put it away completely and follow me or not. And the young man walked away sad because he loved his money more. James 4 brings up the same thing. He, he says this, it's so helpful for diagnosing our hearts. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, your desires, what you love, are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask, and you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? See what James is saying? When you really want something, because it's at the center so bad, you will do a lot of stuff to get it that will not be good. And that's why he says, You adulterous people, because you have made that thing your God. So maybe the next time you're in the middle of a conflict, as you're reflecting afterwards, ask questions, what did I want? Why did I want that so bad? What was I hoping to get out of that? Because those questions will start to reveal what's at the heart, what you really love and treasure most. So what is it for you? Is it money? Our culture loves money, loves the American dream, do you find yourself making decisions about the future based primarily about, based on your bank account and what will happen? Or is it success in some endeavor? I've seen families where they get obsessed with sports and their kids spend more time in sports than with God's people and then they walk away from the faith and the parents are wondering, what happens? Will you model for them that sports mattered more? For me, It's you guys, fear of man. If God's not going to be controlling my heart, it's going to be what people think of me. And so it shows up in all kinds of ways. It shows up in having a hard time sometimes saying no because I I want people to like me. It shows up in having an over-busy schedule because I want to look like I'm busy and doing a lot instead of maybe doing less and praying more, as a pastor should sometimes. It shows up in sometimes not opening my mouth when I share the gospel because I don't want people to not like me. It shows up in me sometimes being willing to shade the truth just a little because that will go down better with who I'm talking to. See, it has tentacles in every aspect of my life if I let it get at the center because that's what happens. Whatever's at the center shapes everything eventually. So again, I ask, what is it for you? God's not at the center, what does tend to be there? Do you even know? Have you even wrestled with those questions? Maybe this morning, you're wrestling with this question for the first time. And you're seeing that God is not at the center of your life. And maybe you can feel the destruction of that. And this is an invitation to put away those things and to look to Jesus alone to be at the center because he has good news for you. Even though you failed this command over and over, he died to pay the price for those failures. And he rose again to offer new life. And second and third and fourth and fifth chances. And Maybe some of you would say, no, God's at the center, but I can recognize that there are times where something else tries to dethrone him and tries to take back over. And that makes sense because the reality is, for most of us, we've lived a lot of our lives with something else at the center. And just when you make that first decision to put Jesus at the center does not mean that all those old habits, all those old patterns, all those old ways of living are suddenly gone. I mean, think with me about a planet that's orbiting a sun. And imagine that planet could choose to change orbits and orbit a different sun. That would be hard. Because everything in its solar system is designed to keep it in orbit around that sun. And that's what we fight. When we choose to put away other gods and put only Jesus in the center, we are also fighting all the old pulls. And so expect sometimes it to be hard and disorienting and discouraging. It's a battle. It's a battle for what's at the heart of your soul. And yet God gives grace. Grace. Because it's not just like moving a house and taking off a foundation and dropping on a new one and the house is the same. No. If you change the sun you orbit around, it changes everything eventually. And that's really what the first commandment is about. It's about asking, what do you love most? What's at the center? Because deciding that is the only way for you to have any hope to obey the other nine. It's only as you have Christ at the center, you have any hope of living out the other nine. And the only reason why you should have him there is because he has proven himself so faithful and kind and merciful and gracious. He's the only one worthy of that place. For by his blood, he has ransomed a people for himself from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And so, the gospel, invitation of the gospel is this repent, put away the other gods, and believe. Trust and treasure and love Jesus. It's for his glory we do that, but it's also for our good. Let me pray. Father, we ask you this morning with the words we sung. Tune our hearts to sing your praise. Tune our hearts to love you and worship you because we feel it, our hearts are prone to wander. And so, Lord, let your grace, like a fetter, bind our wandering hearts to you. Amen. So as we hear these words and we recognize that.